Well, welcome. Hey, if you have your Bible, let's get to work. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be uh, picking it up in verse 13. If you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Mark. We're going through uh, the King and the Kingdom series. uh, And we are uh, just wanting to realign our lives to that which is of ultimate importance. That there is a king and he's brought his kingdom. If you've ever had the experience of being maybe in a developing country or New York City and being in a taxi cab... uh, you ever notice the level of confidence in the character and competency of your driver really uh, affects your whole ride? <laughs> like, I've been in Manila in the Philippines. I, I didn't think I'd survive that one, but I've been in other places, in New York City. Maybe you've had some of those experiences where you're just kind of white-knuckling it, and, and you're getting through, and, but, but uh, you're just glad to be alive at the end of that. Like, the, the, what you think about the character and the competency of the driver really affects your, your ride, right? So um, I, I, was, uh, I was thinking about uh, one time, which was kind of a, a, a parenting fail. Well, actually, a couple parenting fails. Anyone ever try to teach their kids how to drive? Okay, there we got it. We got some. Okay, so uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that is an experience for some of you coming down the road. Uh, uh, but I was thinking of a, a, a fail on, on our behalf. Uh, it was 2008. We, we were in Thailand. Uh, we were doing a few things. We would, uh, if we would take teams from our church in Okinawa and they would serve uh, at the orphanage we partnered with there. And we were also pursuing the adoption of our daughter at the time. And so we spent a lot of time there. We actually lived there for a while. And uh, in that time, one, one of our days off, our, our kids were uh, small. We had a five-year-old, a almost three-year-old, and a, a one-year-old. And so we decided to do the tourist thing for a day. And we decided to go to the elephant uh, bonanza. I don't know what they even call it. Elephant park. Uh, and, and this is uh, up in the jungles of Chiang Mai. And um, we go there and, and, and they have all sorts of stuff. You learn about the elephants and the elephants are playing soccer and they're painting. But the big thing is to go on an elephant ride. And this is not like a ride, like when I was a little kid, went to Denver Zoo and you, you get on an elephant and they go on a flat ground uh, around one time around the track. No, this is like up into the jungles and, and all that. So we're like, this would be a good idea. Let, let's take our, our little kids on the ride. But Jennifer said, I'll stay with, with baby Hannah, but, but you go. And so as you go, you, there's this uh, like ramp that you got to kind of uh, walk up. And then there's like these docks and, and the elephants will, will come into the docks with, with a rider sitting sitting on their head, uh, and um, really what is basically a ball-peen hammer smacking the elephant on the head to give them instructions to uh, go into the dock. And so uh, we're going there, and Jennifer's feeling a little bit nervous, but in, when we get to the front, we see, I see the largest elephant that I've ever seen in my life, this bull elephant. They just keep growing as they get older. This thing was old and ornery. It was about, I think, 57 years old because they have their, their age on the back of, of the, the bench. And, and so I, I took a picture of the guy writing it into our thing. So here, here's the guy. You can basically see you got a, a picnic bench on the back of an elephant. Uh, this thing is huge, over 10 feet tall. And so when you, by the time you're sitting on that, that bench, you're like at the top of a basketball backboard, okay? And, and so they, they pull into the dock and um, the workers are there. They take Zoe first and don't put it up there yet. They take Zoe and put her on the bench and um, elephant's kind of moving a little bit. And then they take Abby, who's not quite two, uh, on the bench. And, and, but before I can step off the dock to get on the bench, the elephant decides he's done. 
They don't want anything to do with it. So uh, before they can put the like broomstick little handle secure bar down, it's up in the air and the elephant just walks away with our kids. Our, three, our five-year-old or, and our uh, almost three-year-old. And Jennifer now is freaking out. She's crying. And, and I'm like, and the guys are, are screaming. And, and the guy on his, uh, on, on his he- head is like smacking the elephant as much as he can. But this elephant, he, he's going to do what he wants to do. He's 12,000 pounds. And so eventually uh, they, they get him back in and, and I, I step on, I, I get on and, and they put the bar down and uh, I'm trying to calm down my kids who are crying and um, they're terrified, right, rightly so. Uh, and, and so uh, eventually we go and we go up into the, the, the jungle and, um, uh, and, and my kids are just kind of, they're trying to enjoy it, but they're like, this is not right, dad. What have you done to us? I actually have a picture of Zoe here. Uh, she's, you can see it in her face. She is not confident at this moment. Uh, what are you doing? And then, so then Abby uh, is also in, in here. She's like, okay, we got this. And we're, we're riding the elephant. And ha- about halfway through, when we're up in the jungle on the side of the mountain, the, the, ri- the driver says, uh, photo, you want photo? And I was like, sure. And so I hand him my camera. I think he's just going to turn and take our picture. No, he stops this elephant, slides down his ear, down the leg, gets off and starts to leave. I'm on this like ornery big elephant and, and he goes up on the hill to take our picture and, and I'm just wondering when is this guy going to do what he wants to do again. And I was just terrified the whole time. But I did get one of the best pictures of my life in this picture. This guy is a monster. You can see his tusks are tall. I'm six foot five and I, I, I look like a toddler. If you look real close, you could see Abby poking her head down below the little safety bar uh, and... Uh, Yesterday, Zoe said it wasn't until the, it's about an hour long ride. It wasn't until like the last two minutes of the ride did she actually enjoy it. (laughs) Did she feel like, oh, we're going to actually survive this thing. Now, because we had no, no, no confidence in the, in the elephant, we had no confidence in the, the, the competency of the driver or or his character. We, We were terrified the whole time as we're riding this elephant. Maybe you've had some experiences in life driving in cars or being in in the car with someone. Uh, Maybe the opposite is true. Have you ever been in a situation where uh, the situation is intense, but you know the pilot is is in control and and the kind of peace that comes with that? I I think of my friend Chris. In fact, we we got to have dinner with him last night. Uh, But when I met him 20 years ago, uh, we we were... um, I mean, he was just a young marine helicopter pilot, uh, but uh, he, he is a, a, a great pilot. In fact, he's one of the best pilots our nation ha- has right now. He's still in the military. But at the time, he was in the Marine Corps, uh, and, and I didn't know how good he was at the time until I was, spent the day with one of his other pilots, and as we were driving, he was like, man, Chris, Chris is so good uh, as a pilot. I'm like, why, why do you say that? He's like, well, Chris can do things that no one else can do. Like, well, how does that even look? How does that even work? He's like, well, for example, on a training flight, Chris will let us fly in, into situations where we could not get ourselves out. We would crash right and at the right, right at the last moment, he would take control of the controls and fly us out of there. And then I remember what Andy said. Andy said, with Chris, I would go on any mission and fly at any time with him. I thought, man, that, that is a picture of 
of the Bible. That is a picture of the story of God, that, that God is, is intensely interested in you being at a place in your life, growing in your faith and your confidence and saying, God, you are who you say you are and you, uh, you, you will do everything you promise you will do. Uh, I am at, at a place of complete peace wherever you go. I'll go on any mission you lead us on because I trust your character and your competency. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God renewing our trust, not because he broke it, but because all of us, including our first parents, turned our back and said, we're not going to trust you. We're going to go our own way. And we broke the confidence and trust. And the amazing thing of the gospel is God doesn't just leave us in that state. He comes for us to rescue and redeem us. God is intensely concerned about your faith. It is the operative word of the New Testament, your trust, your confidence in him, and he's going to do whatever it takes to earn and to regain that in your life. So let me ask you a question. Looking back on your life over the last year, maybe five years, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being extremely like it is an all-consuming passion, and one being like, oh, maybe when I get around to it. On a scale of one to 10, just between you and God, what, what, what number would you give yourself in terms of your pursuit of expanding and growing your trust and confidence in God? Just put a number in your head. This is the, pri- this is the number of priority that I give to growing in my faith. And you think about the things that, that encompasses that, that you think about the way that you, you, you worship, you go to church, you serve, you, you give, all those things. What number would you give that? The Bible is going to tell us that God, his pursuit of you is a 10. And so there is a gap between oftentimes what, what, what is of utmost importance because God says it is, and, and what we pursue with our lives. And Jesus is going to be on a pursuit of your absolute confidence and trust. And none of us have arrived, and all of us have, have ways to go. And some of us have a big comfort zone with God, and some of us have a little tiny one. But, but the, the goal today, and what Jesus is going to do with his disciples, he wants to just press that out a little bit more, just a little bit further than when you came into this room. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 14 where uh, there's, there's two kind of famous stories of Matthew and, and often we don't get these put together, but, but Matthew really wants us to see that, that these stories go together uh, intentionally and I'll show you that in a moment. But what I want you to look at specifically is I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in and through the disciples, This is about a year before Jesus is going to be crucified. And so this last year, what is Jesus' priority? He wants to extend and expand the trust and faith of his disciples. And so the two stories are Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And they are actually tied together, at least the way Matthew does it. And so pay attention to what Jesus is doing through them and what he wants to do through us and through you this morning. So Matthew chapter 14, I'll pick it up in verse 13. It says, now, when Jesus heard this, heard what? Well, if you were here last week, Jesus just heard that his cousin, his friend, his, his predecessor in ministry, John the Baptist, was viciously and savagely murdered, decapitated at a party for King Herod. When Jesus heard this, It says, he withdrew from there in a boat and to a desolate place by himself. So so Jesus, we know, is is intensely connected with 
with his whole being uh, and, and his, his emotions. So, for example, in John's gospel, when Lazarus is dead and Jesus gets to the tomb, Jesus weeps. Jesus is heartbroken and he knows he's about to resurrect Lazarus. So Jesus feels intensely. So imagine you just get news that your cousin was decapitated, your friend, your, and you, you, you love this guy and you hear that. What do you want to do? Well, you want to do, you want to get away. You want to be alone. You want to pray. You want to spend some time with God. This is Jesus' heart's desire. He's heartbroken in this moment. And so he's trying to go to a desolate place by himself. It says, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. So they see his boat on Galilee heading off and, and they're just walking around. And as they're walking around, they're getting, the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger from town to town. And they get to the shore before he gets to the shore. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And don't, don't miss the words I think so, so often we, we read too fast through our Bible. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. I mean, if there's ever a time for Jesus, you, you know, you can take a day off. This is, this is just, you need your own time. This would be the time. But when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion. We saw earlier in Matthew's gospel that that word compassion is not just a feeling. It is always, always, always accompanied by love in action. So we are only compassionate when we actually do something about about it. So Jesus has compassion on them. And so what does he do? He heals their sick. He pours himself out. Even in the midst of his pain and his, his sorrow, he's pouring himself out. Verse 15. Now when, the e- now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves, Jesus so, so they're, they're probably hungry themselves and they're like, hey, we, we need to wrap this up. We, we, we need to eat ourselves. And so, Jesus, could you just send the crowds away? We, we know that the crowd, we'll see at the bottom, has at least 5,000 men, probably that many women, and maybe uh, another 5, 10, 15,000 children. So think uh, the Pepsi Center sold out. This is the crowd there. And the disciples are like, hey, send them away. It's getting late. We're getting hungry. They're getting hungry. Let's wrap this thing up. Sometimes how you feel about my sermon. So um, they, they, they're just, they're ready to move on. Uh, but, verse 16, but Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You, disciples, you, give them something to eat. Do, do, you, do you hear just the ridiculousness of Jesus' command? Like, you 12 guys go feed the Pepsi Center. I mean, even if you had all the food, you 12 serve them. And they're like, this, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. There's no way we could do that. And, and we know from the other gospels, they steal some food. No, they don't steal it, but they get some loaves and some fishes from a little kid. And so that's what they say. Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. That's all we have. That's like five dinner rolls and two fish. This is impossible. And Jesus is like, well, you're getting warmer. You're now getting to a place where you can see me work. And so what, what, is he, what does he say there? He says, he says, we only have here two fish. Verse 18, I, I don't want you to miss verse 18. And he said to him, bring them here to me. Bring me what you got. Bring me what you got. And don't miss that. 
Like we, we give a lot of excuses of, of not following God, not trusting God, not obeying God, not, not serving, not doing this because you're like, well, I'm just a new believer. I can't talk to my friend. I, I don't know enough. Jesus says, bring me what you got. I, I don't have, I could not possibly make an impact with what little money I have. Jesus says, bring me what you got. I don't have the education. I don't have the, uh, the skills to serve and, and maybe teach something. Jesus says, bring me what you got. You know, but it's so small, Lord. I have hardly anything. Jesus says, bring me what you got. And so for wherever you're at right now, wherever Jesus is going to invite you to stretch in your faith today, the thing is not, well, when I'm good enough, when I'm smart enough, when I have enough education, when I have enough experience, when I, when I know this Bible enough, then I'll do some things for the Lord. Jesus says, no, bring me what you got. As inadequate as you are and as it is, bring me what you got. Because when you bring me what you got, you get to see something amazing. You get to see something amazing. So he just says, bring me what you got. And, and, and they do in verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves. And now pay attention. When Jesus done the, does the miracles, it's not enough to just say, what is he doing? But why is he doing it this way? Not, not just what, but why. Because Jesus is the co-creator of the cosmos. He could have everyone close their eyes, snap his finger, and have food in their laps right there. Jesus could do that. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, bring me what you got. He takes it. He blesses it. But, but he's not done. Again, I am convinced he's trying to do a work of expanding faith in the disciples in this moment. He says, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples... And the disciples gave them to the crowds. This is, this is a, a, a New Testament pattern. This is the pattern of God. God is going to do a miraculous, powerful work that only he can do. And yet he invites you and me into the process. Because when you and me are in the process, we get to experience God's power in us and through us. God gets the glory, and there is nothing more joyful in your life when you see God at work in and through your life. And so that's what I have for, here for the first principle. Our faith grows when we experience God doing His work in us and through us as we serve. And again, I would say, well, it's not because you're qualified. It's not because you are the best. Not because uh, you would be amazing if we had you serve. No, for your sake and for your joy to see God work in you and through you, there, there is nothing quite like that for growing your confidence and trust in God. I mean, everyone that has ever done any ministry starts off and is terrible at it. I can't believe anyone ever gave me the opportunity to open the Bible and tell other people about it. It was horrible. For a long time, it was horrible. You, you might still think it's horrible, but I'm trying. I'm bringing what I got. And so Jesus says, bring me what you got. He's going to work in us and through us. That's going to stir in us faith. It's going to stir in us joy. Look at verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. Not, not just a little bit of, of God's blessing, but they were full and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is a miracle. God gets the glory, but the disciples got to be a part of it. And that morning or that day, that afternoon, their faith got just a little bit bigger. Their confidence, their peace in who God is got a little bit bigger and stronger. So the next scene, 
Verse 22, and this is why I say they're connected. Immediately, Matthew says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus finally, after a whole long, tiring day, gets his time alone with his father, gets to grieve the loss of his cousin, and he's praying. And, and Matthew doesn't tell us what he's praying, but, but I think one of the things that he might be praying, this is just conjecture, Bible's over here, I'm just saying that I think he's praying for a storm. I think he sent his disciples on a boat to go across the side. And I think we've already seen this in Matthew chapter 8, that he is is sovereign over the wind and the waves. And I think he's saying, God, Father, send the wind. Send the waves. You're like, well, how is that? You're telling me that God sends the storm and the waves in my life? Yes, because God is at a 10 trying to expand your faith and trust in him. He'll do whatever it takes. And so God is saying, send the storm. Send it into their life right now. And, and, and it goes on for quite some time. See, when, it, when the evening came, he was there alone, verse 24. But the, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And it was the fourth watch of the night. So they've been there for six to eight hours at about 4 a.m. in the morning. They're desperate. They're exhausted. They're taken on water. They think they might die. They've been in this situation before where Jesus was sleeping in the boat, but Jesus is nowhere to be seen. They think it's over at this moment. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He's saying, be encouraged. It is I, the words he uses is ego and me, I am, and do not be afraid. It's the number one command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. 366 times. One for every day of the year, including leap year. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. So the opposite of fear is faith and they can't coexist in the same place. They're terrified. And and by the way, I didn't see anyone shocked by Jesus walking on the water because we're so used to that. But that just doesn't happen. But we can understand it. He's the creator of the cosmos. He, He controls all the molecules. So he's walking on the water. He says, don't be afraid. Now, this is after them experiencing God's power and presence in the feeding of the 5,000. And I think in this case, Peter's faith has been just a little bit extended. And so he takes a step of faith. I I love Peter because this guy is amazing faith and amazing faithlessness all the time. And some of us can relate to that. It's not a straight line to just perfect faithfulness to God. But, But in this moment, we see something amazing. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is crazy. The storm is, is rolling, but, but he is so fixed on Jesus. And he's like, if it is you, I'm not going to be foolish, but you, if you give me the command, you also give me the power to, to come to you. So command me to come on the water. And what, 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 what water walking experience does Peter have up to this point? None. Well, what can Peter possibly do to do this? Nothing. Well, he can do one thing. He can bring Jesus what he's got. 
It's like, I've been a fisherman my whole life. I can put my feet outside the boat, but you're going to have to do the rest. So Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 29, and I think Jesus' reply is with a big old grin, maybe a, a laugh in his voice. He said, come on, come on, man. Come on out here. It's going to be amazing. Come on out. Get out of the boat. Walk on the water. You can come to me, Peter. So Peter put his legs over the side of the boat and he puts it down and something amazing happens. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I love that. In the history, uh, in the history of recorded history, uh, there have been only two people that have walked on water. One is the creator of the cosmos, and the other is an untrained, unschooled, ordinary fisherman from a backwoods place called Nazareth. And they have both know what the experience of, is of walking on the water. I don't know that experience. I don't, there's waves and there's wind, but, but for a time, Peter takes one step after another and he is walking on the water and he's probably more alive than he's ever been. And he's like, oh my goodness, he's focused on Jesus. He's doing awesome. And he, he's just, he experiences water walking. And Jesus, I think, is, is wanting not for us to actually walk on water, but in this story, he wants to show us, fix your eyes on me and, and you can walk on water. You can get out of your boat. You can do what you thought was never possible in and of yourself because it's not. But if you fix your eyes on me, things unbelievable are possible. So that brings us to the second principle. Our faith grows when we step out of our comfort zone and walk toward Jesus. How did, how did Peter take that first step? So, well, I bring Jesus what I have, and I step down. How did he take the second step? The same thing, by trusting God. How did he take the third and the fourth and the fifth? It's the same way. Each step of walking on the water was focused on Jesus. But, but some of you already know the story. You're like, yeah, well, get to the next sentence. We know what happens to Peter. Get to the next sentence. But let me just say this before we get too far ahead of ourselves. He knows what it's like to walk on water. And even in his failure, which we're about to look at, even in his failure, he experiences something of Jesus that no one else experiences. Even even his failure, because he chose to walk in faith, is an experience that will build his faith says, but when he saw the wind, nothing in the circumstances have changed. There's been wind, there's been waves, and we know the story. He saw the wind. He, he, he looked away from Jesus. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And he's, he's sinking and the water's rising. It's going up over his head and he's holding out his hand. And you're like, see, Peter failed. But I think there are 11 other bigger failures in the boat. Peter failed publicly, but they failed privately. They never know the experience of walking on the water, but there's something even better than that. Peter got to experience the faithfulness of Jesus in his unfaithfulness. So as he went under the waves and he stuck his hand out, we see what happens. He feels the strong right hand of the Son of God reach down and grip his hand and pull him up, even in his failure, and grip him and hug him in that moment. He says, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? We'll get to that in a minute. But do you see the faithfulness of Jesus? 
Now, if you were to take a road trip to Yosemite, there is a geyser there that is the most famous geyser. It's not famous for being the most beautiful geyser. It's not famous for being the biggest geyser. It's famous for being consistent, faithful. And suppose one of your friends came to you and be like, I, I don't really think old faithful is that faithful. You'd be like, what are you talking about? I just don't really think it's going to go again. What would you say? Well, why don't you just go see it, spend some time with Old Faithful, and you'll see that Old Faithful is faithful. And this is what Peter's experienced. He's, he's seen that Jesus is faithful even when he is faithless. And then Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. This isn't talking about his fervency or the strength of his faith. He's talking about the consistency or the staying faith. Jesus isn't just interested in you having great big faith. He's interested, and I'm convinced more and more and more, every year I'm a Christian now for 27 years, that Jesus wants your persevering faith. Your faith was little because it was little in duration. You took your eyes off me. I I spent enough time in ministry, enough time around Christians, and know that, that some with the seemingly strongest faith will not be walking with Christ five years from now. There are people in this room and on the patio five years from now, ten years from now, you will not be walking with Christ. You will have slowly drifted away. And I hate that. I hate that. I hate that for you and, I, and I'm even more scared for me. And so the question is, how do we have this persevering faith? How do we continue to focus our eyes on Jesus? Well, Jesus kind of uh, quietly rebukes him and, and, and wants to build into him staying faith. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Here's another thing about water walking. We don't need everyone in this church to get out of the boat and walk on water, but we need like two or three of you. If two or three of you will just step out in faith in the thing that God is calling you to do, and we can see that in our boats, we will be encouraged. Our worship will rise by the experience of God's faithfulness to you. And in you. And so how do we do that? How, how do we get to this point where we go? Do, do you sense an invitation in this passage from Jesus to the disciples and to us? It's an invitation to, to come and experience God's work in them and through them in a way that we never experienced before. It's an invitation to get out of the boat and walk on the water. So what would that look like? Again, we've already talked about it a little bit here, that there are places of, of ministry that we're not asking you to be all perfect and qualified for to serve, but, but to serve and experience God's power in you and through you through ministry here. Maybe it's through personal evangelism. You're like, Mark, I, I'm just a brand new believer. How can I talk to, to someone else? Well, the, the saran wrap on my Bible has just came off. Like, how do I do that? Well, bring him what you got and see him work there. Maybe it's in hospitality. You hear us talk about, hey, have a block party, and that seems really overwhelming and intimidating, but maybe a step of faith, expanding your comfort zone, is just invite one neighbor over. Maybe it's uh, in your career or education, and you've kind of had a crossroads moment, and on the one hand, you're like, this is safe and secure, and I know how to do this, but, uh, but over here, I think Jesus is out on the water calling me to this, and I don't know how to do it, and Jesus says, just bring me what you got. Apply for the job. Make, make the, uh, apply for the school, whatever it is, just bring me what you got. Don't, you don't have to have it all figured out. Just take a step. Maybe it's uh, with foster care or adoption. 
You're like, man, that, that seems way, way, way huge and overwhelming. Well, bring me what you got. Just show up on Wednesday night and hear about it. And hear the story. That's a step of faith. And your comfort zone goes a little bit wider in that moment. Maybe it's missions. I mean, we, we, we've been praying that this church would be a, not only a supporting church of missions, but a sending church. Maybe there's someone here that just you've been sensing for a while that maybe God is calling you to be, do work among the nations. You're like, I don't know what that means. That seems way too intimidating. Guess what? My day job is to talk to people just like you all day long. I would love to talk to you about that, about how to send you to the nations. Uh, maybe it's financial. You're like, well, I can trust Jesus in all these other areas, but I'm going to white knuckle my bank account. I'm going to white knuckle this. I- I've never given anything because I'm so afraid that if I do that, then, then I won't be secure. I would just say, well, what's a step of faith? Give something. Maybe just something if you've never done anything. Where you're like, maybe you're at that point and then the next step for your comfort zone is uh, give a, a percentage. Say, I, I can do 5%. I can do 10%. Maybe you're there and you're like, I can do 15%. You're like, well, I've been doing that. What's the next step of faith? What's the next step to expand my comfort zone? Maybe you say, you know, the Lord has given me so much. This is what we need to live on. And Lord, if you give me anything else, I'm going to invest that for your glory among the nations. I'm going to invest that. So there's all these steps of faith we can take. But I would just say this. Whatever it is God is calling you to, and I don't know what it is for you, but, but I'm guessing because God is absolutely passionate about growing your trust in him. He's calling you to something, and you know it probably. Whatever it is, pick a date and tell a person. By this time, I'm going to do this with this friend, or I'm going to do this with this school, or I'm going to do... By this time, and you tell someone else, hey... I just want to let you know, by this time, I'm going to do this. Well, as we close, I just want to look at the scene one more time. In fact, one of the things I love about the Gospels and the different ones is the different pictures that they give of us. So in Matthew chapter 6, I want to just show you how, how Ma- or, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, how Mark describes this scene. And it's very important for us and for you and for what God wants to do in your discipleship and your trust in him in this moment. So as, as Mark tells it, Jesus is coming out in verse 48 and walking on the water. He's about to come out on the water, but I'll pick it up in the second half of verse 48, Mark chapter 6. I have it on the screen. It says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Check out this next line. He meant... To pass them by. Think about the implications of that. They're in this storm that Jesus sent. They're taken on water. They don't have much more time. And Mark says, when Jesus came out on the water, they're in their boat. And Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm heading this way. And they're terrified. They're scared. Like the implication is, Jesus would have been just fine walking by. That would have been the end of the story of the disciples. We never, would have never got the Gospels, all these things. Jesus was about to pass it by. He, he meant to pass them by. But something happened. We, we know what happened. One guy, one guy said, Jesus, if that's you, command me to come out on the water. And Jesus says, all right, come on out. Here's the deal. There are moments in your life where Jesus is out on the water. And if you let him, he will pass you by. He'll walk out of the room. And you can just live your 
Nice little boat potato life. Oh, but church, man, Jesus is out on the water. He's about to pass us by, but we can say, Jesus, if it's you, this, is, this whole scenario is terrifying to me, but if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Man, that is what God is calling you to. That is what God is calling our, ch- our church to. And we need some water walkers in our church. We need some people that are, are willing to stop Jesus so that our boat doesn't sink. And this city needs that. So bring him what you got and see what he can do with it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you are absolutely committed to growing our confidence, our hope, our trust in you. And you'll do whatever it takes. Your word promises that. And so for each one of us here, Lord, it's scary to think about expanding our comfort zone. I pray for comfort and peace and faith and hope. And and that each of us, in some way, shape, or form, wherever you're calling us to, would take a step this week. And our faith would be bigger as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the ways we want to stir on our faith in response to the Word of God is in four ways. We want to lift our voices and remind our minds and our hearts of what's true. And so we'll sing. We want to uh, pray with one another and say, man, I I believe, help my unbelief. And so we pray with each other. We give, again, not as a way to earn anything from God, but as a way to just say, God, you've given everything. And this is a step of obedience, a step of faith. And finally, we come to this table. And if there's anything that could ever convince you that God is for you and not against you, it's what this table represents. On the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room, said, took the bread and broke it, gave thanks to God. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood shed for your sins. As often as you drink of this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So between you and your faithful Savior, the water walker, the sin bearer, come and take that which represents his body and drink that which represents his blood and remember his great love for you. Amen.